0: Matthew chapter 13, verse 44. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid, and for joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls, who when he had found one pearl of great Christ went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet that was cast into the sea and gathered some of every kind, which when it was full, they drew to shore and they sat down and gathered the good into vessels, but threw the bad away. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth, separate the wicked from among the just, and cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Jesus said to them, Have you understood these things? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he said to them, Therefore every scribe instructed concerning the kingdom of heaven is like a householder who brings out of his treasure things new and old. I hope that you've been following along, and if for whatever reason you have not been with us since the beginning of the parables, I would encourage you to get the study beginning in Matthew chapter 13, verse 1. You'll remember that the chapter began... With Jesus leaving a house in Capernaum. And then he goes by the sea in verse 1. Multitudes gather. Jesus gets into a boat. He begins to speak in a series of parables in verse 3. In our studies, we learned that a parable is an earthly story that reveals a heavenly truth. Our English word parable is a transliteration of the Greek word that's offered here in the text, parabole, which means to place beside or to cast alongside. Warren Wiersbe says, quote, a parable then is a story where we place one thing beside another for the purpose of teaching. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing. He places one thing next to another thing. He invites us to draw our attention to these two things and then draw a conclusion. And remember what we've also learned, that the purpose of the parable is to reveal the truth to the righteous in verses 9 through 12. Again, in verses 34 through 35. And later in verse 51. To conceal the truth from the unrighteous in verse 12 and verse 13. So the parable will have the net effect of revealing to those who want to know the truth and concealing from those who are not interested in the truth. The condition of the people's heart made it necessary for Jesus to speak in parables. And sometimes, again, the condition of your heart is going to make it easier for you to understand or less easy for you to understand. Remember, we looked at the parable of the sower and the soils in verses 3 through 9, and then the explanation in verses 18 through 23. We saw the wheat and the tares or the wheat and the weeds in verses 24 through 30, the mustard seed in verse 31 and 32, the leaven and the loaf in verse 33. So Jesus is going to provide explanations for the sower, the seed, The soil in verses 18 through 23. The wheat and the tares in verses 36 through 43. Throughout these parables, he says, the kingdom of heaven is like this. The kingdom is like that. And so again, what is the kingdom of heaven? Again, in the context, it seems to be a reference to the events that unfold at first concerning the earthly ministry of Jesus, he speaks, he will go to Jerusalem, he will suffer a most outrageous death, he will rise from the dead, he will ascend into heaven, and this thing called Christianity will begin to unfold. And so he's giving us a picture of what is going to unfold in his absence. The kingdom of heaven is a mixture of things that are good and evil, things that are true and false. In in one sense, the kingdom of heaven, like I said, is the story of Christianity, and it's made up of everyone who confesses Jesus in sincerity or in hypocrisy, in truth or in pretense, If the tares are false Christians, and the mustard seed false growth, and the leaven false doctrine, we see the events of history unfold just as Jesus described. In the parable of the tares, we learn that the man was Christ himself in verse 37. The seed were believers, the children of the kingdom in verse 38. The field was the world in verse 38. The enemy is Satan in verse 39. The tares, the children of the devil in verse 38. The reapers that come at the end of the age, these are angels. The harvest at the end of the age, verse 39. God has determined a time. To end your life, he's determined a time to raise up governments and to cast them down. But these aren't parables of disaster, these are parables of a daring rescue to rescue us from our sin and ourselves and from each other. And so the gospel, as it's given in the New Testament, is God's amazing story of rescue. Again, Warren Wiersbe writes, quote, at the close of this age, God will have three peoples, the Jews, the hidden treasure, the church, the pearl, and the saved Gentile nations who will enter the kingdom the dragnet, unquote. And so let's take a quick look. The parable of the hidden treasure. Look what it says in verse 44. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid. And for joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and he buys that field. In that simple sentence, you have three great big ideas a discovery delight, and a decision. What's the discovery? Well, everyone agrees what treasure is. It's something valuable. About two years ago, a couple were walking down a California trail, and there on the side of the road, hidden was a canister, an old tin can. And in it was $7.3 million worth of gold coins that had been minted from about 1851 all the way to 1879. Everyone understands what treasure is it's something valuable, it's something. Worth something and then the delight and for joy over it and then the decision goes and sells all that he has and buys the field and the common interpretation of this parable has been that the lost sinner finds the answer to all of life's pain and all of life's problems and all of life's horror the sinner gives up all that he or she has to possess Christ, but that interpretation, though it seems plausible, contains several flaws. First of all, is the Lord Jesus Christ really a hidden treasure? For some, the answer might seem to be, why, yes. How could you grow up in a world and not know who Jesus is? How could you grow up and not at least watch Things on television about this guy named Jesus. How could you pull a coin out of your pocket and not see 2016 or 1990? All of the coins that we have date from the time of the Lord Jesus. We reckon time in Western civilization according to his appearance on the scene. If you read the Encyclopedia Britannica, you'll find that the ten most famous people in all of human history, if you take the sum and the substance of everything that's written about them, it only then begins to have the same amount of information for the one entry of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ is the most famous and recognizable person in all of human history. Who do you think is more famous, Hillary Clinton or Jesus? See, you laugh when you start to put it in those terms, Donald Trump or Jesus. If you take everyone, I found out this last week, that they think that they discovered the tomb of Aristotle. That might be a name that you know. Socrates taught Plato. Plato taught Aristotle. Aristotle was hired by Philip of Macedon to tutor his young son, Alexander the Great, who will go into the entire world and conquer it. But if you take the entries of Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, and Alexander the Great, they don't even begin to touch the influence of the Lord Jesus Christ. Can the sinner find Christ? Can the sinner purchase salvation? In Romans 3.10 we read, there's none righteous, no not one. The sinners are blind and arrogant and lost. Paul writes that there's no one who seeks after God. Some people will say, well I'm on a search for God. But the God that they seem to be searching for is a God of their own imagination and speculation. The God of the Bible isn't hidden away in some mountain fortress or monastery or man-made philosophical citadel. The God of the Bible isn't found in some mystical, subjective experience. The scriptures teach that you don't look for Jesus, but Jesus comes looking for you. In Luke chapter 19, verse 10, Jesus says, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. What sinner could purchase salvation or Christ? In the parable, the man doesn't just purchase the treasure. He purchases the whole field in order to secure the treasure. You might know, think, what kind of a person does that? Me. I'll go to a garage sale. I'll see a whole box of toys and I'll see one that's of incredible worth for my grandchildren. I'll say, what do you want for the whole box? I'll buy it all to get the one thing. So, how do we think about this parable? Earlier in the chapter, Jesus said, The field is the world in verse 38. Does the lost sinner buy the whole world? Does the lost sinner forsake the whole world? Does the lost sinner hide Jesus just to buy him back? I don't think so. There's some clues that are given to us in the Old Testament. In Exodus chapter 19, verse 5, listen to these words. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine says the Lord. In Psalm 135, verse 4, for the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself, Israel for his special treasure, unquote. Israel was no ordinary nation. Israel was placed on the earth to be a light and a brilliant jewel that reflected God's glory. The Lord says in the Old Testament that although there were many nations with a lot more people, that God will choose this nation, And of course, God calls Abraham and then Isaac and then Jacob. And Jacob has a son named Judah. And Judah down the line will have a son named David. And as you push forward into the future, David's offspring, a young virgin, is going to give birth to a Messiah. Israel is going to bring forth the Messiah. People often ask me, do you think the Jewish people are the chosen people? And I say, of course they're the chosen people. But what are they chosen for? They're chosen to bring forth the Messiah. And guess what? The vast majority of Israel remains unconvinced of the identity of Jesus. For the most part, Israel rejected their Messiah. Again, Warren Wiersbe rightly says, quote, it became a hidden nation, a treasure not being invested to produce dividends for God. Jesus Christ gave his all to purchase the whole world, but in a special way, he died for Israel, unquote. I think that that's true. Is it untrue that he died for you? Of course it's true that he died for you. But like in a very special way. Some of you resisted the Savior, and you rejected the Savior, and you didn't walk with the Savior. You found yourself in a life that was distant and estranged from God. And the Lord found you. The Lord will purchase the entire field, the whole world. Who is the man? It's the Lord Jesus himself. The Bible says in the book of Revelation that one day Jesus will claim the title deed to the planet Earth. The first Adam sold us out. Jesus Christ, the last Adam, bought us back. The first Adam ate forbidden fruit and handed humanity over to the enemy. The last Adam hung on a tree to redeem humanity and will become the fruit that will will allow us to have eternal life. Through the first Adam, the ground was cursed for our sake. The last Adam becomes a curse. Sin through the first Adam produces thorns. God through the last Adam will place a crown of thorns and press it on the head of the Savior. Sin through the first Adam brought death. Jesus through the last Adam... Brings life. Why does he do these things? To save us. To save you. The Lord Jesus through his sacrificial death. Rises from the dead. Appears before the the father. He ascends into the heavens. He goes into the temple. And in Revelation chapter 5 verse 1. He says I'm worthy to take the scroll. This is the title deed to the planet earth. The price to purchase the earth isn't a billion, billion dollars. It isn't the vast treasury of the entire universe. It isn't multiplied worlds. It isn't the sum and the substance of everything that exists. It was purchased with blood the blood of Jesus, God's precious Son. Why would Jesus leave heaven and all of its riches? Why would he set aside his majesty? Why would he walk away from his dignity? Why would he abandon, at least temporarily, most of the prerogatives of deity and pay attention to this troubled world that orbits 93 million miles away from a bright sun, a world marred by sin, consumed by selfish people, diseased and destined for death? The Lord Jesus could a billion, billion worlds into existence and then populate them with people who will honor him and love him and obey him. But the Lord Jesus will buy this world because it contains a treasure. Could that treasure be the Jewish people? I think so. Could the treasure include all people that he loves and will redeem and reconcile? I think so. Could the treasure include you? In the parable, the man finds the treasure and then he hides it again until the time is ripe. In the ancient world, they didn't have Wells Fargo Bank or they didn't have First Trust, they didn't have a banking system in those days they would go and they would take their earthly possessions and they would bury them in fields and sometimes people would stumble upon those fields it could very well be that he places the treasure in a place where it can't be found until the moment that he can secure the field and the rights to the treasure. In one sense, the Jewish people are a precious, hidden treasure, awaiting the time to be put back into circulation for God's kingdom. It may also have been true of your life. You were walking away from God. You were running from God. You were distancing yourself from God. You had no interest in God or the Bible or Jesus or forgiveness or hope. But the Lord was waiting for the exact time, the appropriate time to reveal himself to you. And look at the parable of a priceless pearl. In verse 45, it says, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls, who, when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, it begins with a search for beautiful pearls. Some have argued that the Jews didn't really care for pearls. A quick look in the Old Testament in Aaron's breastplate It contains a lot of room for a lot of precious gems, but every single gem on Aaron's breast is dug from the earth. Pearls were very precious to the Jews, but even more precious to the Gentiles in Egypt, Assyria, Rome. Pearls are mentioned by Paul in 1 Timothy 2.9, where he says, "...in like manner also the women..." Adorn themselves in modest apparel with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing. Jesus isn't saying you can't wear dresses and you can't wear makeup or you can't wear jewelry. He's talking about an unhealthy preoccupation with yourself. Pastor Chuck was asked that question. Do you think women should wear makeup? And he famously said, if the barn needs painting, I think you should paint it. <laughs> it's not wrong. To... Pearl is, of course, the only precious gem. That's the product of a living organism suffering injury. And the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is called his body that's united to him in his suffering. They are possessed by Jesus. They are built by his Holy Spirit in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 27. The pearl was often a symbol for unity and purity and beauty. We discover that the new Jerusalem is prepared like a bride that comes down from heaven adorned by her husband and her gates are found to be made of 12 single pearls in Revelation chapter 21 verse 2 and again in in chapter 21 verse 21. And so some have suggested that the gospel is the pearl or that Jesus is the pearl but once again I think careful Bible students face several different problems with that interpretation can Jesus be bought do we find Jesus does he find us in the first century AD the Roman general Vitellius financed an entire war campaign. In 69 AD, the empire was coming to a collapse. Nero had committed suicide. Vitellius and Otho and Vespasian were all vying for the rights to ascend the throne. And Vitellius takes one of a matched set of pearls in his mother's treasury, who's one of the richest women in all of Rome. He sells it and finances his entire campaign. To put it in in perspective for you, there's another story in the ancient world. Cleopatra wanted to convince Rome that Egypt possessed an incredible heritage and incredible wealth that put it above conquest. And so Cleopatra wagered Mark Anthony that she could throw the most expensive meal in all of human history. And Mark Anthony took the bet. And when Mark Anthony was reclining at the table with the queen, in front of her was a single golden plate and a golden chalice and no food whatsoever. She ordered her steward to go to the treasury and he brought out two massive matched pearls. She took a pearl, she placed it on her plate, and then she dropped it in the goblet and it began to dissolve right before Mark Anthony's eyes. And she took it and she drank it to the bitter end and she placed the cup down and Mark Anthony could not bring himself to drink the matching pearl because of its incredible cost. The Roman general admitted that she won the contest. Pliny, the world's first gymnologist, wrote that the two pearls at that time were worth in excess of $10 million. Imagine taking a very wealthy person and allowing them to live 10 lives over. The church of Jesus Christ is made up of Jews and Gentiles according to Ephesians chapter 2 verse 11. But what makes more sense? The pearl is a type and a picture of the church and the Lord Jesus, beautiful, precious, like a pearl. The church owes its existence to the agony of its host. The pearl is the only gem that comes from a living thing. In 1 Corinthians 10, 32, Paul writes, give no offense either to the Jews or the Greeks Or the church of Jesus Christ. Why am I quoting that passage? Because Paul is pointing out that Jews are not Greeks. And Jews and Greeks aren't necessarily the church of God. That they're different. The church of Jesus is made up of both Jew and Gentile. Who have come into a right relationship with God. Because they have submitted to him and love him. And believe the truth about the the gospel. Have you ever seen a beautiful pearl? Unlike other gems, it is a singular unity, one surface. Pearls can't be cut like diamonds or rubies or sapphires. The church is an organic unity. And even though the the church in the world looks like it's divided by denominations, it is united in a singular sense to the head of the Lord Jesus Christ and to one another. And like the pearl, the church is the product or the offspring of suffering. The Bible tells us in Ephesians 5.25 that husbands are to love their wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. He dies for the church. And like a pearl, the church grows gradually, primarily. Through the vehicle of suffering, the Holy Spirit convicts and then converts the sinner. It's a hidden process. No one sees a pearl being made. The pearl is hidden inside of its host. The oyster is hidden under the water. And in the Bible, the water often speaks of the nations and the church is hidden under the water of the nations. Satan opposes the church, but the Lord Jesus is forming his precious pearl layer by layer. There's a singular pearl. There's one church. I was told by a person who knows a whole lot about pearls that it takes seven years for it to come to maturation. Isn't that interesting? A pearl begins as nothing more than an irritating grain of sand or some other substance that's stuck in the oyster. But the oyster begins to surround the offending, irritating object with a crystalline covering called nacre which hardens over the years. And then it becomes precious and valuable. And what do you do when someone is irritating to you? You reject them. Get out of my shell! What do you do when someone is in your life and they're cutting you? And they're hurting you? They're not just irritating or annoying you. They begin to cut into the very fabric of your existence. The easiest thing in the whole wide world is just get rid of the people who bug you. But Jesus covers you with something beautiful and something precious and something valuable. We're that irritating speck of dirt. And he covers us and he surrounds us with the royal robes of his love and of his righteousness and of his patience. In 2 Corinthians, Paul writing in chapter 5 verse 21 says, For he has made him to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This Jesus loves you and this Jesus covers you and then this Jesus makes you larger than you could ever be by yourself. You're the glorious gem. You're the precious pearl. You know what this person who knows a whole lot about pearls told me? He said there's one deadly thing that will affect pearls. That will ruin them. He said sweat. Now guys sweat. Girls, mist. But whatever that moisture is that comes out of our body... Once it's on the surface of the pearl, it begins to corrode it. It begins to mar it. It begins to make it less valuable. Self-effort has no place in the precious surface of a pearl. And it becomes, again, I thought, like a perfect picture. We're saved by grace through faith. And that not of ourselves. There is no effort that you can offer to make What you are more precious than you already are. And just one more thing. In Revelation chapter 12 verse 12, we alluded to it earlier. The Bible speaks of the universe's largest pearls, the gates of the new Jerusalem. The Bible says the 12 gates were 12 pearls. Each individual gate was one pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. I want you to think about that for just a moment. Each gate is made from a singular pearl. When people ask me, do you think that there's life on other planets? I say, I think so. I think there's an oyster somewhere out there that's bigger than you could ever imagine. (laughs) And it's growing the biggest pearl that you could ever see. Can you imagine how many oyster po'boys that that oyster could make? Someone after the first service said, God could make a pearl that big without an oyster. And I go, I know, but it doesn't go good with my illustration. (laughs) It's interesting to me. We think about the size of the oyster, and that's interesting. But we very rarely dare to go one step further. Can you imagine the pain and the suffering? The creature has to endure to produce the single gate. Heaven is guarded and protected by something valuable, precious, pure, something that symbolizes great suffering. And look at the parable of the dragnet. Look what it says in verse 47 again. The kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet that was cast into the sea and gathered some of every kind, which when it was full, they drew to the shore and they sat down and they gathered the good into the vessels, but they threw the bad away. Pause. Remember where we are? We're on the shores of the Sea of Galilee and Jesus is in the boat and the crowds are in front of him. And it could have been in the not- Too distant area. There's ships that are fishing the sea. They're dragging the bottom of the Galilee with weighted nets. And they're pulling the nets forward. And as they're pulling the nets forward, they're gathering the fish. And they're putting the fish that's going to go to market in one vessel. And they're getting rid of all of the rest of the fish. And in verse 39, Jesus says, so it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth, separate the wicked from among the just, and cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. We've heard those words before in verse 40. Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be, again, at the end of the age. The angels serve as God's instruments of justice and judgment. And Jesus gives us a hint and a clue. He places this parable at a specific moment in time and space in the future. He gives us the hint. The end of the age. Is this also true of the hidden treasure and the priceless pearl? Years ago people started boycotting tuna. Some of you remember, it would seem that fishermen were capturing and destroying large populations of dolphins. They would literally drag nets across many square miles of ocean. They would capture all manner of ocean life in an attempt to harvest the tuna. But while they were harvesting the tuna, they were literally destroying massive, massive populations of dolphins. And many people were rightly upset. We might think of this net in very much the same way. It's dragging through time and space. We might think of this net again as the presence of the gospel and the presence of the church and the influence of Christians and the influence of Christianity in the world. And not everyone who hears the gospel will be saved, but everyone must hear the gospel. Like a huge dragnet, it captures the good and the bad. And the good and the bad are separated at a time when the church comes to an end and the plans and purposes that God has for Israel comes to an end. There are people in the church who place no confidence in Jesus. They don't even believe in Jesus. There are people, like I said, who will come to church. They will have a Bible. It becomes a part of a cultural expression because they're not a Buddhist or a Muslim, so they might as well show up for church, but they have no, no plan whatsoever of believing the truth or embracing the truth or being embraced by the truth or allowing the truth to be lived out in their lives. And God says he'll send angels. He'll separate the believer and the unbeliever. He'll separate the believer from the make-believer. And there's no beautiful way to say And cast them into the furnace of fire, and there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. The chief of police of the Denver Police Department once said to me, Chaplain, there's no beautiful way to hit a man with a stick. I was shocked for a moment. He says, the police officer has three tools in his tool bag. His mouth, where he's trying to resolve the problem. He has his stick. But remember, the stick is a merciful alternative to his gun. A police officer doesn't use his gun unless his mouth has failed to do the job or the stick has failed to do the job. And maybe you are a person or you know a person who says, I don't believe in a God who would send anyone to hell. Well, guess what? Then you don't believe in the God of the Bible. You believe in a God who is unjust and unfair and unrighteous you believe in a God where truth doesn't matter and justice doesn't matter twice Jesus has used the phrase the end of the age God will come to a time when he's done dealing with the Jewish people the plans and the purposes that he has for the church will be done The plans and the purposes that he has for you will be done. And look what it says in verse 51, the parable of the householder. Jesus said to them, have you understood all these things? They said to him, yes, Lord. Oh, I don't like to use my Italian magic powers, but I'm going to just for a moment. I know what you're thinking. They don't really understand. Let me ask you that question. Jesus says to them, do you understand? They say, yes, Lord. Do you really believe they understand? They claim understanding. And one of two things is really true. They do understand. Or they don't. And you understand. Or you don't. Jesus has offered explanations for the other parables, but not for these. Whatever understanding means, it involves responsibility. If the parables are meant to reveal the truth so that we could know the truth and live the truth and share the truth or conceal the truth from those who don't love it, who don't want it, and who won't share it, We have our answer. Jesus will add one more parable. Look what it says in verse 52. Then he said to them, Therefore, every scribe instructed concerning the kingdom of heaven is like a householder who brings out of his treasures things new and old. So what does that single sentence mean? A more accurate translation reads, Therefore, every scribe who becomes a disciple of the kingdom of heaven, is like a householder. Who is the scribe? This is the person who's been instructed concerning the kingdom of heaven. These are the people who are asking and answering, what is this kingdom? Where is, is it going? Who's in the kingdom? And how do I participate? What will happen? How do we have the honor of of understanding, appreciating, and embracing what it says. The scribe's job was to examine the law, discover its teaching, apply its truth in the lives of the people. But the scribe's job was also to preserve the law and protect the law. And sadly, many scribes used the law as an instrument of bondage rather than as an instrument of liberation. We have to learn the truth. Why? So we can live the truth. Why? So we can share the truth. And so the kingdom of heaven is like a householder who brings out of his treasure things new and old. You know what I think it must mean? That there's truth that God has given to us in the Old Testament. God spoke in times past through the prophets. He revealed things in the book of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. As you push through history, there's a revelation that's given. Some of the things revealed, some of the things concealed. And in the new, Jesus the Messiah explains both old and new. There, there is truth in the past and truth in the present. In the rich deposits of the old and new testament we mine the bible for all that it tells us about god's plan and god's purposes the first mention of a scribe in the bible is ezra he's a scribe by trade it's said of ezra in chapter 7 verse 10 for ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the lord that's the scribe learning and to do it That's the scribe living. And to teach in Israel the statutes and judgments, that's the householder sharing. A treasure, pearl, a dragnet, a householder. Jesus announces the presence of the kingdom and and invites his audience to rejoice. He finds the treasure. Jesus urges his audience to recognize the value of the kingdom of heaven in their midst, a dragnet. Jesus illustrates the separation of believers and unbelievers at his return. A householder, Jesus calls on his disciples, learn the truth, love the truth, live the truth. You know, one of the greatest privileges of my life is being a Bible teacher. I love being a Bible teacher. But you know, there's one thing I love more than being a Bible teacher, and that's being a Bible student. You see, for every moment and minute that I spend with you, I've spent hours praying, preparing, Thinking, wondering about what this says, in the hopes that each and every one of you will one day go from student to teacher. And when you least expect it, someone's going to ask you, What's the truth? couldn't help but noticing there's something different about you. There's something different about your life. Why do you live your life the way that you live it? Why do you refrain from those things? Why do you reject those things? Why do you love what is good and you, you run from what is evil? And it'll give you an opportunity to tell the truth. In our story, I think it's far more likely that you're the treasure. Is Jesus a treasure? Of course he is. Are you the pearl of great price, purchased at incredible cost? Are you something that irritated and annoyed God for a very long time, but he decided to cover you with something pure and precious and beautiful? Have you been caught in the great dragnet of the gospel? Are you the householder willing to produce your treasures for public inspection? Are you willing to bring out for the entire world to see what it is that you care about the most? I love treasure. And Jesus loves treasure. And he's given up everything in order to have you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray for that person, annoying, irritating, cutting into the very fabric of its host. Lord, I pray for the person. In disobedience and rebellion has spent much of their life running away. Lord, I pray that you would speak to their heart and their circumstance. Lord, as we see the future, as we see the plan that you have for the Jewish people and the church and the nations, Lord, we wonder what our role is and what the plan is for us. And Lord, we know that there is no greater, greater joy and there is no greater, greater purpose than to love and be loved, to be forgiven, to be cleansed, to be reconciled so that we could have friendship and fellowship with you. Lord, we know that the world is going somewhere. And we know that your plans and your purpose will come to pass. But again, Lord, we pray for that man, that woman who, in the darkness of their heart, have not come to a place of accepting you. Lord, we pray that, that they would would. Lord, we pray that they could offer a simple prayer, acknowledging sin, a willingness to forsake sin. Something like, Heavenly Father, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I've offended you. I know that I'm estranged from you, Lord. We know that that you've offered Jesus as the solution to the to the problem of my sin, and and that if I would by faith come to Him and believe Him and and embrace Him as my Savior, that you would forgive me and not forsake me, that you would cleanse me and not allow me to remain in my filth, and that you would. Put me into a place of beauty, purity, and value. And so, Lord, I want to know you and love you and be your servant and walk with you into the future, a future that you already see clearly. And if that's you and you need to have a right relationship with God and you don't, why don't you just lift up your hand for just a moment? You, it doesn't have to be that way. You can know him and you can love him and you can walk with him. You know, there are going to be men and women who are available to pray with you after the service. So I just invite you to come up and, and so that we can encourage you and pray for you. And remember, God's plans And God's purposes include you knowing the truth, loving the truth, sharing the truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.